Well, I will never forget the day that I showed up to my parents' house for dinner. My mom opened the door and she shoved a pad of post-it notes and a Sharpie into my hands. What's this for? I asked her. I want you to go around the house and mark everything that you want when we die, was her reply. I stood there, as most of you would, mouth agape, and asked, why in the world would you give me such a macabre task? And she replied, so matter-of-factly, because of the Terry Schiavo trial. Now, we have seen some very famous court trials during our lifetime. If I ask you to think about some of the most famous trials that you can think of, I'm guessing our lists might match pretty well. You might be thinking of the Watergate trial that happened in the early 70s, where President Nixon actually ended up being removed from the presidency as a result. In the 90s, I remember the O.J. Simpson trial, which had a bizarre cast of characters, props, star lawyers, and a high-speed highway chase. In the 2000s, as I've already alluded, there was the Terry Schiavo trial. Terry suffered from a massive cardiac arrest, which had left her in a chronic vegetative state, following which her parents and husband had a massive court battle over who got to decide whether or not to take her off of life support. Now, these trials, they not only changed the lives of those who were on trial, but they also changed the lives of a watching world. And yet, none of these trials lasted longer or had as many real-life consequences as Paul's. This morning, we are in week five of walking through Paul's trial. It had begun in Jerusalem, and over two years had lapsed since the beginning. This week will continue from Caesarea. Two weeks ago, I hope you'll remember, Pastor Mike uh, reminded us of the game that he used to play as a child called King of the Hill. The point of the game, obviously, was not just to become, but to stay King of the Hill. And he even confessed to some less than genteel tactics that he used to win the game. Well, that is just what we see happening here in these chapters of Acts. The Jews have risen to seats of great power, but that is not enough. They are determined to keep their seats of power, to accrue even more power at any and all costs, even at the cost of the life of a fellow Jew. So let's pick up where we left off last week. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up. If you didn't bring one with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you. We're going to be in the book of Acts, which is in the New Testament, following the four Gospels. And we're in chapter 25, starting at verse 1. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Sound familiar? Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. 
So let some of your leaders come along with me. And if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convinced the court, or he convened the court, and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down for Jerusalem stood all around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. And then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Now Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, you have appeared to Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. Now, last week we met a corrupt leader named Felix, who was mildly amused by Paul and kept him around for some entertainment, and in hopes that Paul would give him a fat bribe to let him go. Well, that bribe never happened because Paul, as we know, was a preacher and a tent maker, and those are not prosperous professions. This week, we see a different leader come onto the scene. Festus and Felix, they went about things in pretty different ways, but their motives were strikingly similar, the pursuit of power. Every leader that Paul had stood in front of during this sham of a trial has known that Paul is innocent of the charges that are being leveled against him. Paul himself even boldly says to Festus, I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. But though some of these civil leaders are crueler or kinder than others, none of them is willing to do what is right and release Paul. The allure of power is just too tempting. They want so badly to be and to stay king of the hill. Now, it reminds me of a childhood book by Dr. Seuss called Yertle the Turtle. Have any of you all read that book before? Though I would love nothing more than to cozy up and have a story time with you, it's a little too long for me to read the whole thing, so I will summarize for you. And Matt and Larissa have prepared some wonderful pictures for us. Now, the story begins with a turtle, obviously called Yertle. He is the ruler of a small pond called Salamisand. One day, as he sits on his throne, which is a small rock, he surveys his kingdom, and he becomes discontent. He longs to rule over more, and so he comes up with a plan. He calls all the turtles in the pond together, and he says, I want you to climb on each other's shells one by one so that you can make a tower. And when they did, he climbed to the top and he surveyed his new kingdom. 
He could now see the cows of the field. He could see the farmers. He was very happy. But it wasn't enough. He commands more and more turtles to boost him up higher and higher. I need a larger throne. I need to be ruler of all that I see, he says. And he's almost satisfied until he looks over and sees the moon in the sky. He realizes that it's even higher than him. And he must be the highest and the most powerful, the ruler of all. So he orders even more turtles to join this tower. And now it's teetering and it's getting very dangerous. Despite the protests of the ones at the bottom whose backs are aching under this load, the tower grows higher and higher. And he's finally satisfied. Until, these are the last two pages. But as Yertle the Turtle King lifted his hand and started to order and give the command, that plain little turtle below in the stack, that plain little turtle whose name was just Mac, decided he'd taken enough, and he had. And that plain little lad got a little bit mad. And that plain little Mac did a plain little thing. He burped. And his burp shook the throne of a king. And Yertle the turtle, the king of the trees, the king of the air and the birds and the bees, the king of a house and a cow and a mule, well, that was the end of the turtle king's rule. For Yertle the king of Salamisand fell off of his throne and fell plunk in the pond. Now, of course, the moral of that story is clear, right? When is enough ever enough? Absolute power will corrupt us absolutely. We can see it demonstrated with Yertle. We can see it demonstrated by these Jewish leaders who are plotting to kill Paul. And we can see it demonstrated by the never-ending series of civil authorities who are only concerned with retaining and maintaining their own power. I came across this quote recently, and I thought it was very apt for this passage. You can be the moon and still be jealous of the stars. Why do you suppose that these Jewish leaders were jealous of Paul? After all, Paul had left the rat race for political and religious power in the Pharisees when he started following Jesus. So why would he be such a threat to them? Now, at this point, we know that Paul had been under arrest with little piecemeal trials and no actual verdict for more than two years. In fact, as we'll see in chapter 26 next week, poor Paul hasn't even been officially charged with a crime. Two years and he hasn't even been officially charged with a crime. Now, when I thought about that and I thought about how long Paul had had to suffer, I also thought of the flip side of the coin. How long these religious leaders had persisted in their hate and their jealousy and their murderous intentions. Chapter after chapter, don't we see they keep plotting against Paul? Years and years now how far from the heart of God they had gotten. 
It reminds me of the story of Pharaoh in Exodus 7. Pharaoh's heart is hardened against the Jewish people. In this story, we see this symbiotic relationship of Pharaoh hardening his heart against the Jews and then God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And then Pharaoh hardening his heart even further and then God hardening his heart again. It's a spiral of heart hardening. And that's what's happening with these Jewish leaders. As they dig their heels into their own hatred, God gives them over to that hatred. Then they dig their heels in a little bit more, and God gives them over a little bit more. On and on they go until they had spent years plotting and planning the murder of one of their own Jews. At any point in this escapade, they could have repented. At any point, they could have seen the error of their ways. They could have humbled themselves, and they could have changed course. God gave them literal years to course correct. We're told in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, even when God releases us to our anger, our hate, our jealousy, our sin, he still desires our repentance. And he gives us ample opportunity to do so. In this mysterious dance between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, we see God in absolute control while still allowing time and space for people to turn around and confess their need of him. Now, lest you give yourself a pass on this week's sermon because you haven't tried to murder someone lately, I'm going to get in your business and ask you a few questions. Have you ever been too proud to admit a wrong and apologize for it? Have you spent more time guessing what someone meant than just asking them? I hear it. I hear it. It's digging in, isn't it? Have you assumed the worst about another person instead of the best? Have you talked more about someone than you did to them? These are revealing questions, aren't they, if we answer them honestly? We all have some degree of hate and jealousy and desire for power in our hearts. The, the problem is not having these feelings. The problem is what we do with them. Where do we take them? Do we take them to others who will feed them, justify them, empower them, and form a gang? Or do we take them to the searching eyes of the Lord who peels back our excuses, our justifications, and our denials and holds up a mirror for us so that we can see ourselves as we truly are. Scotty Smith is a retired pastor in Nashville that I dearly love. He was one of my professors at Covenant. He regularly posts these kinds of 
get all up in your business questions and thoughts on his personal Facebook page. And one of his recent posts said this, I have never regretted talking to Jesus, humbling myself, repenting and repairing. I have always regretted every self-justifying monologue I have, blaming others, refusing God's mercy, and withholding his grace from others. That cuts us to the quick, doesn't it? But it can also heal us in the hands of God. Will you allow your kind father to hold up a mirror in front of you, to show you who you are, warts and all? Will you agree with him about what he shows you? And will you invite his Holy Spirit to come renovate your heart, making it more and more like Christ's own heart? Apart from these scriptures that we've read this week and previous weeks, I highly doubt that anyone in this room would know who Festus or Felix were today. Did any of y'all have personal knowledge of them? Read, read a, you know, a recent book on the autobiography of Felix? Probably not. <clears throat> Probably couldn't tell me their career highlights, their favorite foods, or any famous quotes they spoke. And here's the point. We spend so much time and effort building and extending our little kingdoms. But in the end, we all end up like Yertle in the dirt. So what is it all for? For the Christian, we are building something eternal that will outlast our own lives. When I was a college student, I was invited on a special retreat with crew. It was a retreat for students who showed a gifting in ministry to take some time away and to see how God might be calling us to spend our lives. During the retreat, the speaker drew a long line on a whiteboard, and I want you to imagine that I'm drawing a line all across this sanctuary, okay? The whole length of the sanctuary. And then he drew one tiny dot above that line, representing our own lives. A span of maybe 80 or 90 years, if we're lucky. He challenged us with this question. Are you living for the line or are you living for that dot? Essentially, are you living for eternity? Are you building a kingdom that will outlast this lifetime? Or is your life being spent on things that are temporary, things that will die with you? Festus and Felix were living for the dot, weren't they? But Paul was living for that line. He knew something that they didn't, that only the kingdom of God will truly last. So what about you? What are you living for? And whose kingdom are you building? How are you conducting yourself in your workplace? How do you live amongst your neighbors? How do you treat your family? What do those things say about whether you're living for the line 
or living for the dot. If we looked at your bank statement, your family budget, your tithing and your charitable giving, would we see that you're living for the line or living for the dot? If we audited your calendar, how you spend your evenings, your days off, your vacation time, is your time primarily invested in the line or in the dot? Remember, you can be the moon and still be jealous of the stars. If you're trying to build your own kingdom, this is especially true. Or you could patiently endure the longest trial in human history if, if you're building an eternal kingdom. A kingdom that can't be shaken, threatened, or stolen. Hebrews 12 reminds us of the kind of kingdom that God, that God is building. It's a chapter full of challenge and encouragement. Let's listen as we close to how the author ends that chapter. I'm reading from the message translation. So don't turn a deaf ear to these gracious words. If those who ignored earthly warnings didn't get away with it, what will happen to us if we turn our backs on heavenly warnings? His voice that time shook the earth to its foundations. This time, he's told us quite plainly, he'll also rock the heavens. One last shaking from top to bottom, stem to stern. The phrase one last shaking means a thorough house cleaning getting rid of all the historical and religious junk so that the unshakable essentials stand clear and uncluttered. Do you see what we've got? An unshakable kingdom. And do you see how thankful we must be? Not only thankful, but brimming with worship. Well, today is officially the first day of fall. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So last night to celebrate, I went to Kroger to buy a mum because that's what you do in the fall, right? So as I was standing in line, the, the lady checked me out. I went to go get a gift card. I had a Kroger gift card and a little uh, zipper pouch in my purse. For the life of me, I don't know why I'd use this thing a thousand times. I could not get the zipper open. So I'm standing in the line at Kroger with the line slowly creeping up behind me, trying to manhandle and yank this zipper with all of the strength inside of me. I'm getting increasingly embarrassed, but I really want to use this gift card, y'all. I really want to use this gift card. So what I didn't see, I looked up to apologize to the people behind me, and what I didn't see is that the guy behind me in line paid for my mom. And I looked at him almost in tears and said, like, thank you. Thank you so much. That was extremely kind of you. Thank you so much. And his reply to me was, God has blessed me, so I'm just passing that blessing on to you. Friends, that is the way that God has called us to live. That is the kind of brimming with worship living that he has called us to. That is what living in and living for his kingdom does to us. So this week and next and the week after, let's let his kingdom shake the junk out of us. 
Until Jesus returns, let your life be about living for that line. By God's grace, may it be so. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you have called us to something bigger than ourselves. Lord, and yet we resist, we struggle. We work so hard for ourselves and for, to build our own lives, to build our own little kingdoms. Lord, would you free us and release us from that burden? And would you help us more and more to lean into your eternal kingdom, to build into it brick by brick, pillar by pillar? Would we build your kingdom, a kingdom that will last, that we will live in forever? And may we bring more and more friends and neighbors and coworkers and family into that kingdom to know you, to enjoy you, and to live in your peaceful rule forever. May it be so, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. May you go this week. May you live for the line. May you invite others to do the same joyfully for your own good and for God's great glory. Go in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.